right. Good morning, Brookstone. It is so good to see all of you here. I'm glad that you've come to church today. Let me welcome all of you who are there at our Merriman Avenue campus today. We're really, really thankful that you're gathering over there. On both campuses, would you take your Bibles, please? We're going to study the scriptures today, so I hope you brought a copy of God's Word with you. Turn with me to the book of Philippians and um, go on over to the last chapter in Philippians. So we're going to go to chapter number four, Philippians chapter number four. It is midsummer. We are in these long dog days of summer now, these long summer, uh, hot summer days. And I'm so grateful that all of you are here. I know that as, uh, as we've been thinking about already this morning, we have a lot of people on mission today out in different states around the country. And of course, folks that are traveling, if you're, if you're on mission and you're tuning in online or you're uh, traveling on vacation, which by the way, if you're traveling on vacation, everybody listen, you're still on mission. Amen. Everywhere we go, we're on mission. So if you're on mission during your vacation and you're tuning in online, God bless you. We're glad that y'all are there and, uh, and look forward to having you back with us next week. Um, you know, we have been talking a lot lately about uh, connection. I know over at Merriman Avenue, Pastor Johnny has been really challenging uh, that congregation recently. Stephanie uh, this morning here was just mentioning uh, the value of connection uh, she told the story of bumping into somebody in Burnsville and said, hey, we go to church together. I was on the phone just last week with a guy that uh, we were having come out to our community to do some work in our neighborhood. And, and in the middle of the conversation, he says to me, hey, I'm really enjoying the preaching, enjoying being at Brookstone. I'm like, I'm, amen, me too. I'm glad, you, but I didn't know, you know. And then we met up and I've got a new friend now. And so there are a lot of times that we're interacting with people that we don't really know that we have this fellowship connection. And so it is so vital. I want to really, really emphasize what you've been challenged on already in these last few weeks. It is so vital that you take some steps uh, to make connection. Just this past uh, Friday morning, I was uh, speaking uh, to one of the guys in our church, and he said to me, he said, my wife and I really... Uh, are looking forward to taking some steps of connection, not just coming to church on Sunday and then leaving, but we really are looking forward to really getting our roots down deep uh, in our church family. And, uh, and I said to him, so here's some ways that you can do that. Let me help you with that, okay? So one way uh, is to be a part of a serving team, find a place to serve. And that's a, a really easy step. It's a really easy thing to do. You can get information very readily. You can check a box on your connection tab that says, connect me with a serve group. Somebody will be in touch with you. Uh, so that's an easy first step, and I would challenge you to, to do that. Not only are you fulfilling your mission to be serving in the kingdom, but you're doing that with other people, right? And so you're, you're building relationships with them as, as you're doing that. This serve day coming up in August uh, is, is a great opportunity for that. Uh, life groups is really the best way. And it's a little bigger step than just getting on a serve team because that involves maybe a Sunday night gathering or a, maybe a, a gathering one night during the week in a home. But man, what a great step it is for you. If you're not currently connected to a life group, then let us help you. Coming up in September, life groups will fire back up. We're launching new groups this fall. I think we're launching about four new groups at the Merriman Avenue campus and, uh, and several new groups here as well. So let us get you connected in September to one of those life groups. Um, build a discipling relationship, you know, a friendship with somebody that's not just my buddy, but it's somebody that, that the friendship is an intentionally discipling friendship 
where we're, we're iron sharpening iron. We really are challenging one another uh, in, our, in our walk with the Lord. Um, I, I'll tell you another story. Uh, this past Friday morning at 7 a.m., I walked into a restaurant to have breakfast uh, with a guy, and he and I are in this discipling relationship. And I looked across, and there's Jeff and another guy sitting there having a discipling relationship in a restaurant, got their Bibles open, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're just helping each other grow in their walk with the Lord. And so these, these relationships are so vital, and I hope you'll, if you're not in one already, I hope you'll get connected in one of those. All right? Well, that is sermon number one for Sunday morning. Don't despair. There's a second one coming, but that's the first one this morning. I'm so glad that, you, that you're here uh, to hear both sermons today. And if you're a guest today, God bless you. Welcome. We're so, so glad that you've come. Uh, I'd love to pray, and we are going to jump right into God's Word. We've got a lot of important ground to cover today, and so I want to I get us started. Father, thank you. Thank you for the joy that we have to be a part of Brookstone Church together. I mean that, Lord. It's so, it's so valuable in my life. Really, it's invaluable, the blessing that Brookstone Church is to me personally, that it is to my wife, to our family. God, thank you that you have given me the gift of this church family. And Lord, I pray that you would give all of us grace to be uh, for you in this family all that you want us to be. Help us to be servants and disciple makers and learners and those who walk with a humble heart to honor Jesus and to build one another up in the family of God. Lord, I pray that our time together today in your word would be a part of that process. And that no matter who we are, where we've come from, if we're longtime members in this church, if we are here every single Sunday, if we, Lord, are brand new today, Whoever we are, wherever we've come from, that today we will realize that God is growing our faith deeper in him, that God is drawing us to trust in Jesus, and that God is doing a work of transformation in our lives and help us to cooperate with you in that work. And Lord, as you do that, we'll give you the praise, and we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said out loud together, amen, amen. Hey, do you remember um, hearing fairy tales when you were growing up? You know, these, these fairy tales that, I don't know if it was like the Three Little Bears or the Little Red Riding Hood tale or whatever, but um, fairy tales or having your mom or your dad maybe um, read you a children's storybook. And the fairy tales in the children's storybooks almost always ended in exactly the same way. In fact, with exactly the same verbiage. Do you remember what it was? They always ended like this. And they lived, say it. You know it, right? And they lived happily ever after. So, so after the, you know, the, the crisis of the book, the real climax of the story, I don't know, like, uh, you know, the wolf is going to blow down the house of the three little pigs or the, or the, or the big bad wolf is going to eat the little red riding hood or, the, or Hansel and Gretel are in there. These are scary stories, aren't they? Hansel and Gretel are caged up by the witch, you know, all these things are going on. But it always worked out. At the end, they always lived 
happily ever after. When you're a, when you're a child hearing those stories, that's what you want to know, that that's the way it goes, right? That everything always works out in the end. Well, it's fine for fairy tales, but all of us who have any life experience at all know that that's not the way that life really is, is it? All of us know that in the world, people's lives don't always end happily ever after. In this world, the circumstances that we face don't always resolve themselves neatly by the end of the story. And so we face disappointments. Things go wrong. We, we endure tragedy and loss and we come upon health crises and, and experiences where hardships and financial setbacks or health setbacks, these are the norm. These are the things that we go through in life. And there's nobody that's going to turn a page in our life and somehow it's all going to end happily ever after. And yet, even as we endure a life which we know is marked by brokenness, we have this promise in God's word that we can still rejoice in the midst of all of those broken places in life. In fact, not only do we have this promise, we're even commanded to rejoice through all of those circumstances. And it's because of that promise to rejoice and the command that we've been given to rejoice, you and I are beginning a, a journey together today where we are going to be thinking about how it is that we can actually do that. I want to welcome you to this brand new teaching series that begins today, by God's grace, going to go for the next five Sundays where we're going to be thinking about how to rejoice, literally making choices that will allow us to experience unwavering joy. Now, one of the things that we're doing this week, as you know, I've mentioned this to you over the last week or so, and you've been given one as you came in today, is that we're providing you with a handbook. So all of you should have uh, in your hand uh, one of these little handbooks. Let me tell you how this is going to work uh, every single week. This, by the way, is intentionally designed, as you flip through it, uh, you'll see, it's intentionally designed to uh, sort of look and feel like a Boy Scout handbook or a Girl Scout handbook. Was anybody in scouting as you were growing up? And, and so you had a scouting, if it was Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts or Girl Scouts or whatever, um, you had a scouting handbook. Well, this is intended to sort of have that same kind of feel as a scouting handbook. And every single week, what we're going to ask you to do is not only bring your Bible to church with you, but to bring your handbook. And each week as we study the scriptures together, we're going to learn how to choose joy by learning to identify the big idea in the text each week and then to learn how to make the right choices which are determined or directed by the text that we'll be reading, okay? So when you open to page number one today, you'll see there's a place for you to take notes like we always encourage you to do. There are a couple of attendant verses that we won't be turning to today, but they speak into the topic and then each week you'll have the big idea and the right choice. We want to learn the big idea and then determine to make the right choice. So I mentioned a moment ago that we have a command and an invitation that in the midst of all of the brokenness along the journey of life, we are to 
rejoice. I want to show it to you in Philippians. It's in chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 4. A very simple verse, an invitation, but also a command. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Have you ever uh, ever noticed sometimes I'll be preaching along and I'll say something, and uh, when I say it, I'll think, well, you know what? That's true. That merits saying it again, and I'll say, I'm going to say that again. And so uh, I'll repeat myself, exactly what Paul does. I'm just trying to be biblical when I do that, okay? It's what Paul does. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Say it again. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So the invitation is that we are to rejoice, but then it is almost as if this emphatic command follows for the second time, we are commanded to rejoice. I want us to think about this command for just a minute, just to sort of lay a groundwork, then we'll go back over to chapter number one and we'll actually start studying in chapter number one. Think about this command in in chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. To understand it, I want you in your mind, and maybe in your note-taking, to reverse or to reorient the alignment of the words a little bit. And so take the word always and put it at the beginning. And so let's begin by thinking about this invitation that we can always rejoice in the Lord. The word always means, as you know, it means exactly what it says, it means at all times. But rather than just meeting 24 hours a day, think about it in this term, in these terms, the word always means in every circumstance. So in fact, no matter what happens, we are invited to rejoice in the Lord. Another way to think about it would be to say in every event or in no event at all, regardless of what happens or if nothing is happening at all. If my life is making wild swings of good and bad, or if my life just seems mundane and average and boring, in every event or in no event at all, always, in every circumstance, that's the timing that we're given. Then what we are commanded to do, we're invited to do, is that we are to Rejoice. You'll see that word in verse number four a couple of times. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. By the way, the word rejoice is found in the book of Philippians 18 different times. Now, there are only like 105 verses in the entire book, right? So there's four chapters. It's not that large of a letter, but 18 times. It averages out to about once about every five verses. There's a a, a new reference to joy or to choosing to rejoice. The word means in In all of your circumstances, in every event or no event at all, be glad. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to be glad about the circumstance, but in the circumstance, to be glad. The word rejoice means to have a calm or a resolute cheerfulness. It's a a sense of joy or cheerfulness that resides deep in my soul. Always, in every circumstance or in no circumstance, rejoice, find your cheer, your calm, where? In the Lord. The verse says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When I'm asking you to think about it this way, always rejoice in the Lord. As you would know, the word in, or to say in the Lord, means to rejoice from a position 
of resting within him. So regardless of what's going on around me, I am resting in him and therefore I can rejoice. The idea is that the Lord is the source and the resource of my rejoicing. I do not rejoice based on what's happening, but I rejoice based upon the fact that the Lord is the source of it. So the invitation is this. Here's the principle. Always, in every circumstance, we are secure in Christ. We're secure in Jesus. And as a result of that, we can rejoice. It doesn't matter what's happening. I'm secure in him. Therefore, I can rejoice. Now, I want to show you this to you in a graphic. So take a look at the screens. They'll show us this. So here's what the circumstances of our lives are like. Have you ever experienced this? Your life kind of goes uh, up and down. There's an ebb and a flow to the circumstances of life. Sort of like a wavelength, right? So sometimes we're on the mountaintop. Right? Thank God for the mountaintops. Everything's going good. We're pretty healthy. Got a little money in the bank. Our relationships are going well. It's just a good time. And then other times we find ourselves in the valley. Valleys can come a lot of different ways. Maybe it's because of some relationship that goes sour or we're just we're struggling with some, some issue in our bodies or whatever. It can be a thousand different things, but we find ourselves in a valley. It's the way life is. It's up and down and up and down and up and down. Some of you are, on, are in the deepest valley of your, of your life right now, perhaps. I mean, you're as low, you're feeling as, as low and facing as much difficulty as you could ever, ever remember. That's where some, some people are. Other people are on the mountaintop right now. You're saying, man, life is so good right now. Sometimes the valleys are brief. We're glad when they are. Sometimes the valleys are long. Sometimes the mountain peaks are really, really uh, wide and we get to stay on the mountain a long time. You ever been on a mountain long enough? I mean, a, a, a circumstantial mountain long enough that you're wondering when's the next shoe going to drop? Like, like when am I going to have to go down into another valley? It's just the way life is. All of us know this. But what the text is telling us is that in everything, in all of these mountain peaks and valleys, here's the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is solid. He's that unwavering, unchanging line that never goes up, never goes down. He just is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because my joy... Philippians 4.4, is rooted in him, it's in the Lord, then regardless of what's going on here, I can always rejoice. If that makes sense to you, would you shout amen? amen. Jesus never change, changes, therefore we can rejoice in him. Now here's the good news. This rejoicing that we can choose or this joy that we can experience is, is not pretentious. It's not pretentious. Pretending. Uh, someone has said to me before, well, look, I, I can't just pretend to be happy. I'm not happy. My life stinks right now. My, my circumstances are bad. And so how am I supposed to just pretend to be happy? The joy that we're invited to experience is not a fake, pretentious, fake it till you make it kind of joy. We're, to be a Christian doesn't mean that I hold a mask with a big clown smile in front of my face which hides the grief that I'm bearing. In fact, remember the, the uh, definition of rejoicing. It is a calm cheerfulness in the soul. 
So there are times when my face is weeping, where the joy is not pouring out of my face, but my soul is still finding joy, and that's okay. So it's an authentic kind of joy. We're not, we're not as Christians, we don't sing Hakuna Matata in the middle of a stampede, amen? We're not going, no, no troubles for the rest of my days as I'm getting trampled. We're not drowning out the sorrow of our circumstance by cranking up Bob Marley singing, don't worry, man, be happy. I mean, that's not, that's, the joy that we have is authentic, and part of the reason that it's authentic is because this joy is the very purpose for which we have been made. In fact, I want you to jot this down just to sort of quickly make note of it, and then we'll move right past it. But you should recognize that all, not just you and me, but all of creation finds its purpose in rejoicing. Everything. The Bible says this over and over. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, let the heavens, that's the the stars and the the planets, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea rejoice. So this is what Scripture says, that God created the universe and, and the earth upon which we live so that these elements could rejoice in him. Psalm 96 verse number 12 says, let the field be joyful and let the trees rejoice. Rejoice. Psalm 98 verse 8 says, Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. Now I just want you to think about this for a minute. Those three verses say the heavens, the earth, the sea, the field, the trees, the rivers, and the hills. Well, I would uh, think you would agree with me that this is a broad representation of all of creation from the planetary systems to the rivers that run in our valleys, and they're all made for the purpose of rejoicing in their creator. All of creation was made for this. This morning, early, before the sun came up, I was sitting out on my back porch and praying and thinking through today's message, and I kept hearing these little birds that were, that were just chip, 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 chip. And they just got louder. And as the sun started coming up, they got louder and louder. And the truth is, they they so caught my attention, I was trying to concentrate, and I was annoyed. I mean, really. Tells you how pleasant I am in the morning before my second cup of coffee. But these (laughs) these birds are like, chip, 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 chip. And they start singing. There's one bird that started singing this, this repetitive song over and over and over and over again. And I was like, will you change songs, please? Do you ever do this? And then I started, in my mind, putting words to the song he was singing. And then I totally was off track. And it occurred to me, as in the midst of my fussing about these birds, that they were doing what they were created to do. That they were rejoicing in the Lord. The fact is, all of creation was. And if all of creation was, then certainly it's true for us. All people were created to rejoice as well. I want you to know, you were made to find your joy in the God that created you. You think about the account of creation in Genesis and that wonderful place called the Garden of Eden and how that in every aspect, the Bible says, and it was good. And in that place where Adam and Eve existed together with their God, everything was for their good and that they might rejoice in it. Deuteronomy 32 and 43 says that all the nations were made to rejoice in our Creator. The problem is, and we all know this, the problem is that this world of nations 
has fallen into sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so our creation has been marred by sin. The nations have been defiled by sin. And people who were made to rejoice in God now live in this broken world around broken people and all of the death and brokenness that comes along with that drains the joy out of our lives. The purpose of creation has been defiled by the reality of sin, but it doesn't change the purpose for which we were made. So here's the good news. It is that it is that Jesus restores our joy in this broken world. Here's what I want you to know, that we were all made to praise the Lord. We were all made to joy and rejoice in him. And so Jesus renews that possibility. He renews our joy, restores our joy in this broken world. I want to read to you. You can turn with me if you'd like to. I just want to read briefly out of uh, Isaiah chapter number 12 where the scripture speaks about this joy in a broken world that we can have. Isaiah 12 and verse number two says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Verse three, therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Think about this. What Isaiah 12 says is that in a broken world, there is a wellspring of joy, which is called salvation, that God, our Savior, verse number two, God has become my salvation, that God, our Savior, gives us this opportunity to have our rejoicing or our joy restored. And so we have this salvation which provides a wellspring for us. Here's a question. If that's true, if we are made in a creation that ought to joy in God our creator, if all people were made to rejoice in him, all nations were made to rejoice in him, but all nations and all people have been plunged into sin, therefore the purpose of our joying in our creator has been marred. Here's the question. Is it possible for an unsaved person to have true joy? Pretty good question, isn't it? Is it possible... For someone who's never been saved, never experienced God's salvation, to have true joy. Well, I would answer the question this way. It is to say that that because God is good to all people, because he causes the sun to rise on the wicked and the the just, he causes the rain to fall on on the saved and the unsaved, Because God is good to all people, certainly all people under such common grace can experience joy. Uh, Unsaved people love their kids and their grandkids and find deep joy in them. Uh, Unsaved people find great joy and satisfaction in their work and, and in their pursuits. Certainly unsaved people can have joy. However, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, here's what I want you to know. You will never know ultimate joy, not just in the pursuits of life or in the relationships in this life, but ultimate joy in God who made you. You will never know ultimate joy and you will certainly never know eternal joy unless you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And in Him, 
Now we have uh, that enhanced joy in all of earthly pursuits and relationships. We have ultimate joy in a relationship with him and we have eternal joy because we know that we will spend eternity with him. So I want you to know that your joy is gonna be found at the end of the day, ultimately and fully. It's gonna be found in a restored relationship with your creator through Jesus, our Savior. So with all that said, back in Philippians, let's go to Philippians chapter number one and let's think about this idea of how it is that if joy, if, my, if salvation is my well of joy, then how do I draw water out of there? You know, if you got a well, you need, you need a bucket, right? I mean, in the old days, you needed to drop a bucket down in there. You couldn't just flip a, a, a spigot. So you need a bucket. So how, if, if salvation is my well spring of joy, then how am I going to dip down into that wellspring and find joy? Well, for the next five weeks at least, the book of Philippians is going to be our bucket. We're going to drop the book of Philippians down into the well of salvation each week, and we're going to take a deep and full drink of joy. Uh, if you were here last weekend, I know many of you were traveling because it was the fourth uh, holiday uh, weekend. But if you were here, you'll remember that we spent our time studying in Acts chapter 16. And in that chapter, we saw the birth of the Philippian church. Uh, you might remember how that we studied that Paul had landed in Europe for the very first time. He establishes the first church on the, uh, on the European continent, and uh, that church was in Philippi. Uh, by the time you come to the end of chapter 16, there are three or four members of that church that are named or that we know about. There's Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman. She comes to Christ, and she's where the, her house is where they meet. There's a demon-possessed girl that her, the demon is cast out, and she becomes a part of that church. There's a jailer, the, the, the warden at the county jail. Uh, he becomes a member of that church. And God begins a great work in Philippi. Well, Paul is there for a period of time, and then he moves on in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And as he leaves Philippi and continues on with his ministry, these people continue with him, not physically, but in their hearts and with their love and with their support. They go with him. And about 10 or 12 years after the church is founded, Paul then writes this letter back to them, which we have as the book of Philippians. So we're going to begin reading it in chapter 1 today. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Uh, you follow along as I read, please. Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Now, by the way, that means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. If you believe that, shout amen. amen. Uh, turn to your neighbor and say, good morning, saint, and call their name, so-and-so. <laughs> good morning, saint, so-and-so. Um, Paul and Timothy, to the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with all the bishops and the deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Always in every pray prayer of mine for you, making request with joy your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet or right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, 
Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of my grace. I don't know if you've noticed, if you're reading in a King James translation, we've finished verse number seven three times in seven verses. Paul has said, you all. Have you noticed that? Translated, y'all. Take with that, do with that what you'd like. Y'all, follow me in verse eight. For God is my record, how greatly I long after, well, look at there, verse eight, y'all, in the compassion, the affection of Jesus Christ, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, that you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know that uh, you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have uh, fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. They've resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ, Paul's writing from prison in Rome, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in other, all other places. And many of, my, of our brothers in the Lord are waxing confident by my bonds and they are becoming much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some, for sure, are preaching Christ out of envy or strife. Some also out of goodwill. So a couple of things are happening. Paul's in prison. Two groups of people now are preaching more uh, um, boldly as a result of his imprisonment. Some who are taking up the mantle. We've got to preach because Paul can't right now. Others are seizing an opportunity. Paul's in prison. Now's my chance to get my message heard. Some of envy and strife, others of goodwill. One is preaching Christ out of contention, not sincerely, but supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other is preaching out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. And in that, I do rejoice and I will rejoice. For I know that this imprisonment, this suffering, this adversity, for I know that this shall result in or turn out to my deliverance or salvation through your prayers and by the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And it is according to this earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing will I be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so also now Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. Man, what an encouraging and uh, bold declaration by Paul as he begins this letter from his prison cell. I want you to fill out in your handbook. Let's begin by just understanding the big idea in this passage. So write down the big idea. Here it is. It's really simple. It is that God always finishes what he begins. God always finishes what he begins. Unlike some of us husbands who begin projects and tend to never finish them, God always finishes what he begins. You'll see this in verse number six where uh, we have this, this encouraging promise, this confidence that Paul declares in verse number six, being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will complete it or he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Write this down somewhere in your notebook. Grace, grace is God's good work in progress. In verse 6, he talks about the work that God has begun, and it's the work of grace. And I want you to think for a couple of minutes about the, the work of grace that is an ongoing work in all of our lives. You know, one of the things I notice in these first few verses of Paul's letter is that it's very clear to me that Paul is feeling very, very reminiscent, very sentimental, uh, really kind of nostalgic. And it makes sense that he would be. He's incarcerated. He doesn't have freedom of movement. Uh, he has to stay in one house. He's under house arrest. And, and so he's thinking about his friends. And Epaphroditus, who's with him, has come from Philippi, brought an offering to Paul from them. He's getting ready to send him back to Philippi, carrying this letter with him as he goes. And so he sits down to pen the letter, and it's obvious that as he writes, his mind begins to reflect on their first days together in Philippi. I can imagine, you know, it's been, it's been at least um, 10 or 12, maybe 14 years since he first arrived there in Acts chapter 16. And I can imagine him just sort of sitting back and and putting the quill up to his mouth, you know how you'll do with a pen or a pencil, and, and thinking about that Macedonian call. You know, remembering how, God, we were looking where we should go next, and what did you want us to do? And we came to Troas, and we didn't know where to go, and then, God, you gave us that vision that it was a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And we got on that ship, and we sailed over to Philippi. I remember landing there, and, and we looked for a synagogue, and there wasn't a synagogue, and so we just found a place of prayer. And we read about all this last week, right? So he's thinking, I, I remember going down to that riverside the first day and just kind of watching the people there and seeing how they were praying. We started some conversation. Man, I remember Lydia. I remember when Lydia got saved. And he's thinking about that demon-possessed girl probably that followed them around for a few days and, and was a thorn in his side and how that God delivered her. I mean, you could feel the nostalgia. He says to them, I, I, I thank God for you, verse number uh, Four, or verse number three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I'm always praying for you. I, my memories, verse four, bring me joy. I'm so glad, verse five, for our fellowship in the gospel over all these years. In fact, he says in verse six and seven, I have you in my heart. When I, when I think of you, I pray for you. And it's right that I would be so joy-filled when I think of you because you're rooted, you're saddled right down here in my heart. In fact, he goes on to say, you share in my grace. The grace that I've received from Jesus, you've also received from Jesus. And, and we have a common bond in Jesus. I have to tell you that as I, as I read these words and I see Paul thinking this way about these people that he loves, I do the same thing sometimes, don't you? You're, you ever get mindful of what God has done in your life over the last, I don't know, kind of parallel it with Paul the last 10 or 15 years? You ever think about the last 10 or 15 years of God's goodness and in that journey, the people that you've shared that journey with and maybe you're still in a relationship with them, maybe they're still very close, maybe they're sitting by you right now or maybe it's somebody that's moved away or for whatever reason your circumstances don't allow you to be together but you think about them often and you go, man, every time I think about them, I thank God for them. I love that person. I love God's work in them. I remember when they got saved. I, I remember when 
and you start enjoying all these memories. I want to tell you, I, I do that with you a lot. I, a lot of times on Sundays, I stand in worship or I stand here while I'm preaching. And, and while I'm preaching, I'm looking at some of you and I'm going, I remember when she got saved. Or, or I'll see a guy over here, I remember when God put that thing back together. Or I remember the grace I've seen in that person. And these, these memories, these joyful memories of God's gracious work in our lives over the years bring us great joy. He says, I am reminded, I'm remembering, I'm, I'm filled with joy because of the fellowship that we enjoy together. Verse number six, he says, this work that began in you all the way back there in Acts 16, when, when we first met, that work that started all those years ago, God, I'm telling you, he says, will complete that work. You know, I think there's something that we ought to take note of in verse number six, and it is that when he says that I'm confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, it's, it's significant to note that the work of grace, this work of God's grace that's in progress, the work of grace has a definite beginning and a definite ending. I want you to think with me about this for just a minute. The work of grace in our lives started somewhere and it will one day come to its full completion just as surely. Now, I recognize, even as I say, the grace of God has a definite beginning point. I recognize that in a way, in a sense, we can't, we can't see that beginning point because God's grace extends far beyond prior to our birth, Right? I mean, the Bible says that he knew me in Christ even before he made the world, right? So, so his grace to me began long before I began. So I understand that. And I also recognize that God's common grace to all of us is something that's kind of an invisible thing. We don't really see it. Before I ever came to Jesus, God was being very, very gracious to me. So I get that. But what I'm talking about, this work of grace has a definite beginning point I mean to say that there's a, there's a place, there's a moment, and it's that moment of conversion when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. That's what Paul has in mind here. This work of grace had that moment. For me, it was April 29th, 1981. God had been gracious to me before that. But on that day, the work of grace began. I came to faith in Jesus, and that, that uh, transformation of my life began. You have a day in your life if you're saved. You have a day in your life. You may not remember the date. You may not remember the, the month or the week or the year. But you have a place. There's a spot. There's a moment when the grace of God began to work in your life. He says in verse 6, this work which he has begun to initiate. He commenced, he initiated a work in our lives. He says, I'm confident that the work that he began... He will perform. Do you see it in verse number six? He will perform it. It means he will execute it. He will bring it to completion. He will finish what he has started. And when will he finish it? He makes it clear in verse number six. He will perform it until it is completed on the day of Jesus Christ. There is coming a moment. If y'all are with me, shout amen. amen. There's coming a moment. I don't know when it'll be. It could happen today. I could die today. Jesus could come today. It might be 50 years from now, but there will, wait a minute, 50 years now, I'd be 104, but it could be a number of years out. 
when I will stand before Jesus and in that moment, in that exact moment, like you close a book, like you mark a timestamp, the work that he initiated on April 21st, 1981 will be completed. He will finish what he has started in me. And the same thing is true in you. He will perform it until the day of Jesus. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, now, right now, today, we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when, we shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's the completion. When we are made to be like Jesus. And so here's the principle out of that, that if he initiated a work of grace in my life and he is going to perform it until the end, and it will be completed when I stand before Jesus, here's the principle. If we're still breathing, God is still working. Amen? God's still at work in my life. If we're still breathing, God's still working. And I think it might be appropriate for you and I just to whisper a prayer and say, God, thank you that you're not finished with me yet. Thank you. Thank you that that I'm not what I used to be, praise God, but I'm not what I'm going to be. Because the grace of God, the work of God's grace is ongoing in my life right now. And that also means this. That if there is a person that you love or someone that I love and they know Christ is their Savior and yet we wish they would be more for Christ, that they would live for Christ as they say they know him, just know this, if they're still breathing, God is still working. We keep trusting him. You never know what God is doing. The prodigal father in Luke 15, the father of the prodigal son had no idea what God was doing in the pig pen and yet God was at work because of We're still breathing, God's still working. Now the truth is, sometimes though, um, it's hard to see God's work, right? Verse six is a promise, it's an assurance, it's a confidence. I am persuaded, I am confident that he's gonna finish what he started. But sometimes it's hard to see the work ongoing. But I want you to write this down just to be encouraged about it is that personal struggles do not deny the work of grace. In fact, Remember what we just learned. The work of grace is progressive. It began somewhere. It's going to end somewhere, but it's currently ongoing. As long as you're breathing, God is working. So it's an ongoing, unfinished work. And because it's unfinished, it means that we are still going to continue in some fashion, to some degree, hopefully less and less. But until the work is finished, we are all always going to continue to struggle. We're going to face battles. We're going to have struggles with sin, and we're going to continue to need transforming or transformation. In fact, Paul acknowledged this in his letter to the Philippians. Look at verse number 9 of chapter 1. He says, I'm praying for you that your love will uh, yet abound more and more. So I'm praying for you to grow in love and in knowledge and in discernment or judgment. Verse number 10, I'm praying that you will live with purity, approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Verse 11, I'm praying that you'll be filled with all the fruits of righteousness which come to us by Jesus Christ for his glory. I mean, think about it. The fact that Paul prayed that they would grow in love, grow in purity, grow in righteousness means that they still needed to grow in love, grow in purity, and grow in righteousness. 
And so they're in process. And even though he celebrates God's work in their lives, he's praying that God will do more and deeper and greater work in their lives. This is the nature of being a child of God. He began a work. He is still continuing that work. In fact, if you read all the way through Philippians, we won't obviously take the time to look at all the instances this morning, but you'll find a number of places where he speaks to the inconsistencies in their lives. He challenges them for saying one thing and living another way. It has to do with their, their relationships. It has to do with their selfishness. Uh, it has to do with their, their having conflicts in their relationships. Over and over in Philippians, he says, hey, stop this and start that and, and do that differently. Why? Because they're still in process. And so my encouragement to all of us is this. It is to say that if you're struggling, if you know Christ is your Savior and you're struggling to, to live out that faith life and you say, God, I wish I was further along, just know this, keep surrendering to him because he is still working and the struggles don't deny the fact that God's grace is present in your life. Lastly, we could learn from Paul's example that personal adversity Neither does personal adversity deny the work of grace. Now, don't answer out loud, but let me ask you a question. Honestly, have you ever felt like God's forgotten your address? Like God doesn't even know where you live? He's forgotten your name? Because we go through these valleys. Remember, life's full of mountain peaks and valleys, and sometimes we go through valleys and we feel like, God, what are you, how could it be that if you're, if you're this good and gracious God who loves me so much, how could I be going through all the stuff I'm going through? God, why is this happening? What are you doing? Where are you? And we, we endure this adversity and we feel like if, if God's work of grace is active in my life, how could I be going through such adversity? Well, the truth is, and Paul's life is an illustration of this, that that adversity in no way means that God is not at work. In fact, the adversity is even a part of God's gracious work. In the same way that a potter puts his hands on the clay on the wheel and begins to spin it. Can you imagine if clay could talk? I mean, imagine what clay endures in becoming a beautiful piece of pottery. First of all, it's thrown down on a table, a wheel of circumstance it has no control over, and somebody has their foot on the pedal, and they're just pedaling, pedaling that thing, and that, that's, that wheel begins to spin chaotically. You know, don't you think the clay would be going, whoa, I'm going to fly off of this thing. I, what's happening in my life? And then when, when suddenly they're spinning like this, then these two big hands begin to crush in on that thing. And begin to mold it and shape it. It's having to bend this way and turn that way. And, and then the potter takes a knife. And begins cut pieces out and, and cut that out and bend that in and shape that and put a handle here. And all the while, if the clay could talk, the clay would be going, why do I have so many problems in my life? Why is everybody pressing in on me? Why is my life spinning out of control? And all the while, the clay is being made into something that will bring great glory to the potter. Listen, if you're on the wheel and your life is being pressed, know this, that he who has begun a good work in you is still working and he will finish it. And he knows what he's doing. And Paul says in verses 12 and 13, 
I want you to understand, verse number 12, brothers, that the things which have happened unto me, the things which, what had happened to him? Since he had left them, what had happened? Now, here's a little Cliff's Note version. He had been uh, in danger of being beat to death by the Jewish people. He had been put in prison for two years in Caesarea. He had been put on a ship and sent over to Rome. Along the journey, the ship had wrecked. He had been in a shipwreck, and now he's sitting in a Roman prison. Doesn't sound like a nice little journey of all his health and wealth and wonderful. He is on the will of circumstance. Yet he says, the things that have happened unto me have happened. They've fallen out. They've resulted unto the furtherance of the gospel. He says, the things that are happening in my life are causing the gospel to go forward. He says in verse number 14, and many of our brothers are growing stronger in their faith because of what's happening to me. And in verse number 19, he says, you Philippians are growing stronger in your faith because you're praying and I'm praying and we're trusting God through these difficulties. And in verse 18 and verse 20, he says, and in all of this, Christ will be magnified. If you are listening, I want you to shout amen. Amen. Man, know this, that he who has begun something in you is not neglecting the work. He hasn't forgotten what's happening to you. He's not ignorant to the circumstances. In fact, he has allowed those circumstances to come so that he could shape you more fully because he's finishing the work. Man, I... Even as I say that, I recognize that there are people who endure things that I can't even imagine. Do you know I got a, I got a note from someone in our church. I'll not name them because I don't have permission to it. But I got a note from a person in our church who has cancer. And this person, in the, it's like in the middle of the note, said, God graciously sent cancer my way. And I don't want to waste it. that person understands is that adversity, hardship, difficulty, the pressing of God's circumstances in my life are not somehow punishment or God's forgetting about me. It is God making me to be what he wants me to be because he started something and he's going to finish it. It's true in my life, it's true in your life, and it's true in the lives of those that we love. And so knowing that, knowing that verse number six is in the book, for I am confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to make a choice today. Here's the right choice. It is simply that today I choose to believe that God is at work in me and in those that I love for the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's what that means. When I make that choice, it means and I will stop fighting, and I will stop running, and I will stop resisting, and I will rest. I will rest in him so that as my circumstance does this and the, and the pressure comes like this and life is uncomfortable or life is difficult because of how I love those that I see hurting, that I will know that God's at work. He'll finish what he started, and therefore in him, I can rejoice always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Let's pray together. Father.